1: Serial Killers, Strange Disappearances, Unexplained Mysteries, Terrible Disasters
0: I'm Nate Hale, and in my show The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Glad to have you here with me, as always. It is with great pleasure that I introduce this week's guest, Laura Thompson. She is a New York Times bestselling author of many, many good books, including The Six, The Lives of the Mitford Sisters, and the first biography of Agatha Christie in 20 Years, called Agatha Christie, A Mysterious Life. The book she is here to talk about today is entitled A Tale of Two Murders, Guilt, Innocence, and the Execution of Edith Thompson. So glad to have you here with me. Thank you.
2: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, Eric.
0: Yes, of course. So what prompted you to write a book about these events?
2: Well, first of all, Edith Thompson is not a a relation of mine. Although it, the coincidence of the names is that it is pure coincidence, but it was a sto- I think the coincidence of the names did interest me in the story, and I have been interested in it since I was a teenager. It's, I've always been interested in true crime, like your listeners, and you know this uh, there are certain classic English murders like Dr. Crippen and um, Madeleine Smith and some of these stories that you, you kind of grow up with in, in England. And obviously, as Agatha Christie's biographer, I was interested in the, the reality behind those detective stories. But this story of Edith Thompson is, it seems to me, the most extraordinary of the lot. It happened almost 100 years ago. The murder took place in October 1922, and Edith was hanged in January 1923, along with her lover, Frederick Bywaters. And there are certain stories, again, within the English-British criminal justice system. There are three that people always talk about. There's Timothy Evans, Derek Bentley, and Ruth Ellis, which took place between like the late 1940s and the mid-1950s, which are regarded as huge miscarriages of justice and brought about the beginning of the end of the death penalty. The story of Edith Thompson is never really mentioned in that context, and yet there is a big case for saying it's, it is a, a, a miscarriage of justice. You know, it's, but it's also a complicated story because there are two people involved, and whenever there's, whatever they call in, in, in our legal system, a case of dual enterprise, the, the victim was Edith's husband, Percy Thompson, And the murderer was her lover, Frederick Bywaters. But the case was that he did it under the incitement, if you like, of Edith. And so it's a question of dual enterprise. So separating guilt, apportioning guilt, if you like, becomes a difficult thing to do. And it was additionally massively complicated by the fact that Edith had written letters to Freddie Bywaters. Twenty-seven of these letters were put in evidence at the Old Bailey. There are another twenty-nine extant which weren't used. And they these letters were regarded as evidence of incitement to murder. And you can kind of see how that came about, but equally when you look at it with a clear head and removed from the atmosphere that surrounded the trial at the time, you can also see that it was... Um, <laughs> the evidence against her was practically non-existent. Uh, Freddie stabbed this man to death, Percy Thompson, and she was present, but there is literally no evidence to say that she played any part in the crime, knew anything about the crime, and indeed, Freddie Bywaters always tried to exonerate her from the crime, but she was hanged nonetheless, and it is the most powerful true crime story that I have ever read about, and I sort of almost had to exercise it for myself by writing about it because it has haunted me for for so long, and it still does. Because you can't exercise it because it's just too awful, you know.
0: Oh, I can only imagine. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the case, mm. I would like to start by asking you about Edith Thompson's formative years. What was her family life like? How did she grow up?
2: Yes, it's a really good question. A very loving family. Uh, loving parents, three brothers and a sister, all younger than she. She was like the star of the family she was born on christmas day 1893 and she was born i don't i never know how class <laughs> how class plays out in america vis-a-vis here because here as you know class is it's so massive within this society and even today uh, things change things are getting better but then For a girl like her, growing up in the, you know, years of the First World War and and coming to maturity around that time and the early 1920s, she came from what we would call, because these things are very precise, sort of working class stroke lower middle class. How ridiculous that sounds. But what that means is a sort of not very well off, a very small house in East London, but basically respectable, what they would call respectable working class. And the fact of this upbringing absolutely circumscribed everything about her life. You could say she, there was prejudice against her because she was a woman, but it was also a class thing, because what she was was aspirational. She was um bright she left school at 15 that was normal but she was you know quite well educated and she was very bright she went out to work at 15 and then she got a job in a a sort of hat cellars like a warehouse almost in the city of london and um she rose she became a bookkeeper and then she rose to become like a manager and this was pretty remarkable really for a girl of um, her origins, but she was hugely attractive, very, very attractive, not so much you wouldn't necessarily get it from a photograph or anything, she's got rather a protean face, sometimes she looks quite beautiful, sometimes she looks very ordinary, but she, she must have been hugely attractive in a way that men found intriguing and other women found perturbing. You know there are some women that other women don't really like? And she was really one of them. (laughs) The the, the lack of sympathy toward her from other women when she was on trial was really quite astounding, quite striking, quite distressing to read now. The novelist, Rebecca West, who was, you know, a notable feminist all for the sisterhood and everything, she said, "Um, oh, well, I have no sympathy for for, uh, Mrs. Thompson. She was uh, a shocking little piece of rubbish. This is from Rebecca West, the feminist. So... um, so she was a she was oh she was a bright girl with so much life in her you know and um and yet she was always circumscribed by by class uh in the way that uh, you know people just were you know if i go back into my own family antecedents you know people people would you just you just there was a limit to how far you could break out and she was regarded at the time of the trial as someone who had probably tried to break out too much, you know, who'd got above herself because the English don't like that. And also she was sexy and the English really don't like that. She was a lot of things that people don't like. But what really was unlucky for her was the time at which all this happened because it was after the First World War. And if you read the social history of sort of 1919, 1920. Inevitably, the whole world was in, you know, in a state of, well, shock, dismay, grief, whatever. And there was this, there was a, a big desire, certainly in this country, for things to try to get back a little bit to how they'd been before this terrible carnage happened. And there were, there were a lot of, there was a lot of pressure within the, um, the media, the, the press, whatever, for women to return to the home. Because they'd been working during the First World War, you know, in the munitions and everything, and and there was a lot of pressure for them to in women's magazines and things like that. You know, the the best job of all is being a wife and mother. There was an awful lot of that, and obviously women had had a taste of freedom. They didn't. They weren't so inclined to to go back to the way things had been before. But there was this inevitable desire within society to return to an attempt to return to the old. Certainties, if you like, and when this murder case uh, took, took a hold of the public imagination in the trial was December 1922, and it was just mammoth, it was a tabloid sensation, it covered, oh, you know, small trees worth of, 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 of paper newsprint, it was just enormous, and a lot of people regarded it as a sign of where society was going wrong, you know, in the years after the war when we all needed to pull together and and return to some sort of moral stability and everything. This case, this woman with her lover killing this innocent husband became a sort of symbol of where society was going wrong. And some guy in the, um, the Sunday Express newspaper said, it's a glimpse of a modern London without a conscience or an ideal she became, she more than Freddie Bywaters, she became a symbol of what society should not be, you know, where, where women were getting ideas, the wrong ideas about how life should be lived and, you know, discontentment with proper life, wife and all that sort of thing. She had no children, which was regarded as weird. She went to work, which only one in 10 married women at that time did. She earned more than her husband, she earned £6 a week, which was more than him, and she had a lover at a time when there were 1.9 million surplus women because so many men had been killed in the war. She had two of them, and not only that, this lover, who was a very good-looking young man, was almost eight years younger than she was, which even now would be quite a thing, you know? Even now it would be, all cougar, you know, all this kind of thing. And because the age gap then was regarded as so surreal, it had to be that she was the dominatrix. She was the person who had made him commit this murder because otherwise you simply could not account for the dynamic of this relationship. So all in all, everything that she represented was everything that society feared. She became a kind of symbol It was almost like a Salem moment, you know, within this country. The desire to excoriate and hold up this woman to a program. and when you read the the papers and everything it's actually quite scary the hatred the desire to destroy her was 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 really overpowering and yet there was also this massive fascination you know queues around the block for the old bailey started at about four in the morning and homeless people would take a place in the queue and they could, they could sell that for five pounds which then was you know so it was, it was a, a cool celebre, extraordinary. And it was, it was the, the, her personality, really, that fascinated people.
0: As you mentioned, the timing couldn't be more unfortunate. The jazz era uh, was exploding. Hemlines were rising. Flappers were starting to make a scene. Uh, lots of things for stodgy old Englishmen to disapprove about.
2: Oh, it, it really, really I mean, that. Even if it had been a couple of years later when, when the, the kind of jazz age had taken some sort of hold, but at this point, 1922, I think they still really felt that that was not inevitable, that the 1920s need not be, you know, <laughs> the, the end of civilization if people had known it. That I think they really did think that they could, I don't know, that, that, as I say, the, the kind of moral certainties and, stability of pre-war society could be restored. I don't know, it's like we've gone through a time of huge change in this country over the last sort of three years with the the vote to leave the European Union and everything has been in uproar and, and everyone has been looking for scapegoats, looking for guilty parties, all that kind of thing. I mean, not in the same way as this case, but a time when society is not feeling sure of its future and that sort of thing. And certain people can become scapegoats. And she absolutely did. She really, really, really did. But she, the the most interesting thing about her in a way is that she was so ordinary. She was just an ordinary girl who went to work and had a husband and, you know, just led a life like any other woman. And yet, so she was... Kind of Every woman figure to whom this thing happened, uh, her life went completely out of control in a way that I think an awful lot of people could relate to. And yet at the same time, there was something extraordinary about her because she seemed to arouse very strong emotions in people. And I think it was the quality of sex appeal that she had, which was almost unconscious in her and is actually quite rare, I think, real sex appeal you know, you can you can fabricate it. But I think the real thing is quite rare, and I, I think she must have absolutely had it. And when you read her letters, which are actually rather extraordinary and beautiful, uh, very beautiful, very beautiful, they're so sensual, they're so eroticized, but in a beautiful, innocent, almost like D.H. Lawrence kind of way. You know, they're not, there's nothing artful about them, really. They're quite lovely. But of course... In a court of law, when they kept saying to her, Mrs. Thompson, will you explain what that means? Will you explain what that means? And half the time she didn't know what it meant herself. It was just something she felt like writing at the time, because she had this excess of feeling in her that her daily life didn't allow her to, you know, express fully, she couldn't explain what she meant. And so analysts of this case, because obviously this other people have written about it before I have have said, oh, she was a fantasy. She was a romantic. I think it's more complicated than that. I think she had a writer's sensibility and, and all sorts of different realities had an equal reality for her. Um, You know, she would she would write about, oh, going and playing a game or something like that with all this vivacity, and that would have a kind of... And then she'd write about, oh, I tried to kill my husband. And that would have a reality at the time she was writing it. And then she'd write to Bywaters how much she loved him, and that would have reality. And the whole thing is just her expressing herself in a way that... Trying to write her own life, if you like, in a way that she couldn't do in any other... She had no other means of doing that, and Bywaters became the recipient for it all, even though what he was well, he was just a good looking young bloke on a ship really, you know. He didn't he wasn't really the right recipient for all this stuff, but he became the recipient and of course a reader has the right of interpreting what you write to them and he interpreted it in ways that she didn't necessarily expect and that she probably should have expected in a way. Um, she should have realized more what she was doing, I think, with all this, oh, I wish my husband were dead, I wish my husband were dead. But So I talk quite a lot in the book about how guilty she was. She's not guilty in any way that had anything to do with the old Bailey or a gallows, but of course he wouldn't have committed the murder if she hadn't been writing him these letters. So there is a degree of guilt, and it's a question of what that is, what, what nature, what quality of guilt, blah, blah, blah. And that's all quite interesting, I think.
0: So the center of this story is this love triangle, I guess you could call it. And it starts with she and her husband, Percy Thompson. Did she marry up, would you say, in terms of social class? And were they happy, at least in the beginning?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Did she, did she marry up? She... No, she married the boy next door, really. Because, again, I don't think she would have thought to do otherwise. Uh, She had all these dreams and and things going on in her mind, but when it came to it, she married the boy next door. And if only she hadn't, um, three people who died uh, very young wouldn't have done so. I mean, Percy was only 32 when he was murdered. She was 29 when she was hanged, and Freddie was 20. So... All of that could have been avoided if those two hadn't married each other. But she, you know, she came from a time and a class where you got married. So she got married at um, 22. Yes, that's right, just 22. Um, And uh, he, he was... It's a funny thing, usually the, the sympathy is with the murder victim. It's a funny thing with this story, the sympathy is with the murderers, which is, is not good really, but Percy, there's something about Percy that makes him quite hard to, he's kind of prim and a bit pompous and uh, he didn't treat her terribly well. He certainly knocked her about a couple of times. I mean, today in a court of law, that would have much more um, importance within the evidence, but then you know the, the 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 feeling was well if he did that she asked for it. They had a big sort of showdown. Uh, it is a, it is a, a love triangle as you rightly say. I mean, in 1921, the summer of 1921, um, Freddie, the the Thompsons, and Edith's sister, who in a way makes it into a love rectangle in a way because she is the fourth person in this drama Edith's sister Avis who was younger and nothing like as attractive she was in love with Freddie and the four of them went on holiday to the Isle of Wight which is an island just south of um, England very pretty island and they they all went on holiday together as two couples and then what happened is that Edith and Freddie well Freddie told Edith that he was in love with her and Avis never really got over that and still tried to get Freddie back for herself, which, of course, she could have done because she wasn't married. So she she played a part in this as well. And Percy didn't know what was going on and invited Freddie to be uh, the lodger at his house because Edith and Percy had a, a really very nice house in a suburb of London. I mean, it cost £250, which is, you know... Unreal, <laughs> um, just ridiculous when you think of property prices. But you know, really, a rather nice um, villa, as they were called, uh, in Ilford, which is now not very nice, but was then a very genteel suburb of London. You know, very, they were on the up. They were on the up. Percy was a clerk. They were they were two people, two young people, getting on in the world. Anyway, Freddie had uh, a room there in the back bedroom. And that was when he and Edith became lovers. And, you know, it's not, it's not the most attractive picture, this poor man Percy, not knowing what was going on, and these two, these two young, beautiful people getting together under his roof. But then he did get an inkling of what was going on about six weeks later, and there was a kind of showdown at the house um, in, in early August, and he chucked Freddie out of the house. And they did sort of square up to each other. I don't know if he realised they were having an affair, um Edith and Freddie, but he certainly knew something was going on. And that was almost like a prefiguring of the murder. They got quite aggressive with each other, and Percy sort of chucked Edith across the room and hurt her arm very, very badly, which I suppose you could say, well, he had uh, he had grounds for being angry with her. But at the same time, from reading between the lines, I don't think that was the first time he had sort of, uh, you know, been violent toward her. But reports of his character differ. And in some ways, Edith seemed, this this is the odd thing about it all, in some ways she seemed quite happy with him. You know, in some ways it was like she could have gone on like that forever with Freddie, who was, The key thing about Freddie really was that he was away most of the time. He was on a ship. He was going around the world. He was going to Australia. He was going to um, France and places. And their affair was over 16 months. And in that time, they only spent, well, I think it was 14 weeks of leave that he had. And they certainly wouldn't have seen each other every day and their sex life would have been very very minimal really so this great love affair that affronted the whole of england was actually barely a love affair at all but it was a, it was passionate and it was murderous so working back from that you know i suppose you could say uh, it was a love affair that shattered people's <laughs> sense of, of of the proprieties but the thing with edith was that Even up to the end, she was going out with Percy to see friends. They were going out to play cards with people. They were seeing each other's families. On the face of it, it was a perfectly ordinary, not necessarily happy, but, you know, like a lot of marriages at the time, because divorce was so rare. There were about 800 divorces a year. You know, it was that rare. And... The only way she could get free would have been to leave him because he had to divorce her because she she was the adulterous party. So he had to divorce her the way that the divorce laws were. And he wasn't going to do that. He would do, you're my wife and you're going to stay with me, you know. And so she had to to get away. She would have had to leave him with Freddie and she would have been giving up her lovely house and all her lovely things and et cetera, et cetera. And it was more than she wanted She didn't want to do that, really. And yet, all the time, she's writing these letters saying, oh, if only we were free, if only we were free. And, of course, in those days when divorce was very hard to come by, people did kill their spouses. I mean, Dr. Crippen did, and people like Adelaide Bartlett did, and people in the the Victorian era, you couldn't get away from someone. All you could do was kill them, (laughs) which is pretty awful. But if you didn't have enough money the only way you could ride out a separation was either to be very aristocratic or so poor that it didn't matter. But if you were in the middle and respectability mattered to you and finances mattered to you, you couldn't get free. And in another way, I don't think Edith wanted to get free because she could earn money. And Freddie could earn money. They could have gone and lived in some little flat somewhere and, and been happy. But something in her knew that that wasn't really what she did want. She was sort of writing a story that was a fiction that became reality in a way that you could hardly believe. So there are layers of reality and, and uh, invention and imagination and so on within these letters of hers. And that is what the court couldn't really interpret because it was too complicated. So all they could do was say, well, somebody died. Therefore, when she said, I want this man to die, she meant it. And Freddie, reading her letters, being very young, rather hot-blooded young man, became inflamed in a way that I don't think she really intended. But as I say, you have to say she is responsible on, on some level that nevertheless had nothing to do with being a a capital crime
0: yeah that's what i was going to just ask you (laughs) and i think you started answering it there are plenty of jilted lovers out there who don't murder the husband of the woman they're having an affair with so so i know this is all speculation of course but Mm. was there something do you think that pushed by waters over the edge
2: you know, I've thought and thought and thought and thought about this because I got so—I've never been so lost in writing a book. I was kind of, you know, so absorbed in it um, and it, it dealing with her words and few of his. She destroyed most of his letters, uh, but a, a couple were put in evidence at the trial, and they're so passionate. When she said to her mother, "You don't know what kind of letters he was writing to me." I mean, you know, you, you can infer them from the two that still exist. Um, what I think probably happened, judging, but, but going by the, 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 the evidence, okay, he had, he had leave from his ship in June of 1922, and they got together, um as they usually did, slightly unsatisfactory, they had nowhere to go really to they She refused to go to a hotel that would you know her sort of class sensibility wouldn't allow that would have, that was too daring so they you know were in parks and things like that, and it was all very um but i suppose exciting in a way and um then he went away in june nineteen twenty two and he didn't come back until the end of September. They were apart for sixteen weeks. And I think that separation is the key to it, because what happened was that he, he another very interesting character in this story is his mother, Lillian Bywaters, who was a widow and a, a woman of strong character, very impressive woman, it, 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 desperate story, you know, I mean, what happened to her son? It's, it's sort of beyond bearing. But it, it, she saw danger in this relationship from the start. And in fact, he fell out with his mother because she said, do not see that woman. Do not see that Edith Thompson. That is dangerous for you. You know, she's eight years older than you are. It's, it's, um, it's going to end badly and how right she was. And, but he wasn't having it. You know, he was a, because the lover generally does triumph over the mother when it comes to these things. But she, I think something that she said probably did permeate Freddie. And also there was, Avis, Edith's sister, who was in the mix, and who Freddie liked, not with the passion that he liked Edith, but he liked her, and I think did think about marrying her, and I think something, while he was away, and probably other girls, you know, girls in other port, he was terribly good looking, and um, attractive to women, and although he was only 20, he was, you know, a man, he'd been round the world, he was, uh, 20 then was much older, obviously, and I think absence didn't make the heart grow fonder. It made, it made the brain go a bit more sensible. And he started writing to Edith saying, now, look, we should call cool it, you know, not in so many words, but let's just be friends, all this kind of thing. And the whole time I was reading these lists, I was thinking, oh, God, please. you know what's going to happen, but you're sort of thinking, oh, please, please, just just look, he's talking sensitive. Just, just leave it, Edith, just leave it but no she couldn't she'd she'd invested too much in it she'd she'd bound up her whole the life that she that meant so much to her her imaginative life her emotional life had been bound up so closely with this very good looking but essentially quite ordinary young man and she just could not let it go she had loads of other men after her she had her boss after her and you kept thinking well He'd be so much better person to have an affair with if you're going to have an affair, you know. But no, because she had this, she wasn't like that. She wasn't even interested in sex. She was interested in what Freddie allowed her to be, what Freddie allowed her to express about herself. She couldn't let it go and she kept writing to him and saying, oh, darling, you know, don't let's say that. Don't let's just be friends. How can we just be friends, etc., etc." And she worked and worked and worked away at him. And as I said at the trial, you know, she couldn't bear to leave the man alone. Well, that sounded bad, but it was sort of true. She had no pride about it. She didn't play it cool. That wasn't her style at all. She had the sort of dignity of being extremely, totally abject. Anyway, when he came back, and you feel his ship getting nearer and nearer and nearer to this terrible fate that's awaiting them both, Um, when he came back he agreed to see her and that was it they were back you know where they just as they'd always been except that there'd been this prolonged absence the emotion getting higher and higher and higher and him trying to pull away and her pulling back and you can feel it in these letters the emotional tug of war between them and then when she got him back, he came back immediately, like a, like a beautiful dog almost just sort of coming back to her heel. The last two letters he wrote her are very passionate. You can feel the, the attraction between them. Is, is, you can feel it still, you know, 100 years on, on the page. And, um, and then what? They were, nothing had changed. She's saying, I can't live without you, I can't live without you. Oh, I'm going out with my husband tonight. Oh, I'm going out with my husband tomorrow. Oh, and the next night. Oh, and the next night. And she writes him a letter saying, you know, I have to go out with him. Oh, do you think I want to? Oh, you know, no, no. If only we could be together. If only we could be together. Exactly the same as before. And I think he, in some way, wanted to bring it to an end. (laughs) Um, You can't, There is no real motive for why he did it. It's kind of irrational and inevitable. You could say, I mean, the night it happened, she went to the theatre with Percy and a couple of relations, and by all accounts, they had a very nice evening, Piccadilly Circus, went to see a show. And on the way back, uh, they got the train back, they got the train back to Ilford, they were walking from the station to their home, which is quite a long walk, down these very long, regular streets um very calm and then freddie rushed out from behind a sort of bush and and there was some sort of fight because the trail of blood went a long way down the street and then uh, there were a lot of blows with this knife and i think four of them were were deep and he got percy in the Um, now whether he meant that to happen. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I think I think it could he could possibly have got um a manslaughter conviction, but the trouble is they wanted to get Edith as well. And if it were manslaughter then you couldn't say it was planned and if it wasn't planned then you couldn't get Edith. And what they wanted was to get Edith because she was eight years older and because her letters said that she'd been trying to kill Percy for the last sort of fourteen months or whatever with poison, the way people did try to kill their spouses, you know, Crippin and Bartlett. So she was, she was in that tradition, according to the trial, even though if she'd been trying to kill Percy, she hadn't done a very good job of it, because there he was, and the autopsy said there was no evidence of poison damage whatsoever, but they kind of brushed that aside. That was how keen they were to get her. But what snapped in Freddie? Um, it's a very good question. He spent the evening at her parents' house, Edith's parents' house, with Avis. And I've sometimes wondered whether Avis said something. You know, oh, Edith's gone out with Percy. Oh, you know, she'll never leave him. She likes him, blah, blah. You, you, uh, because, I don't know. But it was almost like, here I am back again. I've tried to get away from this woman and here I am back again. It was almost, and he was so young and he was hot-blooded. He jumped ship. He had a kind of snap in him. And, you know, yeah. But if it had been pre-planned, as the trial said, for a start they'd have done it the next evening because he was due to go back to his ship the next day. He nearly got away with it. He just had to get through one day before he was arrested. But he didn't manage it because they found his letters before he could get onto his ship and get away. So they'd have done it the next night if it had been pre-planned. And also... Edith would have burned his last two letters the same way she burned all the others because it was only the fact that they found those letters that led her, led the police to him in the first place. So she would have destroyed those. She would never have been so stupid to have left them. So the idea that it was pre-planned, even though the trial was absolutely convinced that it was, I, it, it makes absolutely no sense at all.
0: Right, right. So. There is no long, drawn-out investigation here, Um, as you've already mentioned. Police put the pieces together pretty quickly, and Bywaters was questioned first, correct? How long did it take authorities to extract a confession out of Freddie Bywaters?
2: It it didn't take very long, because once, once they knew of his existence, that was it. She she held out and she lied. She lied and they kept saying, oh, she's a liar, she's a liar. Well, of course she lied, for goodness sake. She lied that he'd been at the scene of the murder. She said it was a, an unknown assailant, as it were. And that story was kind of accepted, but for a very, very short span of time. And and another character who came into the, the story, who is also another very interesting character, was... Percy's brother, Richard, who also lived in Ilford and, again, had risen in the world. He was an accountant and a very, he was kind of respectable in, loathsome man, I thought, and he loathed Edith, which you might say with good reason, but he kind of loathed her before any of this and gave interviews to the press saying she wasn't just a murderess, she was a a prostitute and a, you know, terrible, terrible, wanted to make sure that she wasn't reprieved or let off in any way. And he first gave the name of Bywaters to the police because they'd they'd held out, and um, when it happened, she was like a, a, a gibbering wreck, Edith, which, of course, they subsequently said was acting. And she was taken back to her home and there was a tenant in the house, uh, Mrs. Lester, who sort of observed a lot of it and is quite an interesting source. And she, she sort of stayed with her and then they got her mother there and her sister there. And they were all praying that the name of Freddie Bywaters wouldn't come up, although at that point nobody exactly was saying what had happened. But once the name Bywaters was known and it was Richard Thompson who initially gave it to the police, then they were kind of up and running. And there, there was a girl at Edith's place of work who also gave her away. There were some people who be- behaved very um, very shabbily. A young girl who sort of Edith had thought was like a friend. She uh, alerted the police to a place where Edith kept letters and all this kind of thing. And there were these two letters from Freddie and a photograph. And then they went to Freddie's house where his mother was and i think his mother must have alerted them to edith's letters because she obviously had seen danger coming and it was far worse than anything she could possibly have foreseen and she directed the police to um, a suitcase which actually contained about 50 of edith's letters and then that was that, really, because there were passages within those letters that even I, who am on her side, find difficult to explain. Um, there's, there's undoubtedly uh, a time in the spring of 1922 when she was really talking about poisoning Percy. You know, people who say she was just a fantasist. There are. Th- 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 you can't quite say that about some of those passages when she says, "Oh, don't tell anybody," and blah blah blah. And then subsequently, when they were both in the death cells, Bywaters called his defence counsel in and said, "Look, she did ask me to get something. She asked me to get cocaine, and I said I would, and I actually gave her quinine. But she was so insistent, and she wanted she wanted poison for Percy Thompson." However. If that were the case, and if she really were hell-bent on poisoning her husband, the fact is she didn't. So all you can say is that her imagination reached a, a kind of pitch in the spring of 1922. But nevertheless, whatever, whatever was going on in her head, whatever, even if she put a tiny little pinch of something in, something he was eating, the fact is he was not killed and the autopsy re- revealed no poison damage to his internal organs. But then again, you come back to this question of incitement and the pressure the kind of almost Lady Macbeth-like, you know, <laughs> pressure that she was putting that caused him in some way to, to try to escape from her because however thrilling and exciting and uh uh, wonderful she was in many, many ways. It was in some ways it was all too much for him, which was why when he went away in the summer of 1922, he tried to get away from her. But it still doesn't amount to talking about poisoning in the spring of 1922 does not amount to someone putting a knife in someone in October 1922. Um, and her defense counsel, Henry Curtis Bennett, thought she should have been tried for on a lesser crime of uh, I can't quite remember what the technical term was, but it was some minor sort of incitement that would have meant a couple of years in jail and that she probably was guilty of that. But of course, that wasn't what they were interested in. That was not the mood. It was a kind of story being written and the end game of that story was her destruction. And then when it was all over, I should think an awful lot of people thought, what on earth have we done?
0: We will be right back. <laughs> Um, Let's transition to the trial, um, if you don't mind. How did the defense position itself? What would the defense of Edith Thompson be?
2: Well, she had a very high-end barrister, Sir Henry Curtis Bennett, who was regarded as, you know, one of the best. I think he did a terrible job (laughs) myself, but there um, There were very, very, very few people who took her side. It's quite amazing. Even people who were sympathetic, who didn't think she should be hanged, thought she was completely guilty. And it's only subsequently that that has been questioned. But a couple of people who thought for themselves saw the case against her as this ridiculously flimsy sort of attempt to tangle her up in various webs of her own spinning and one of them said, Filson Young, he said, look, what Curtis Bennett should have done is just said, look, I offer no defense. No defense whatsoever. You prove, you prove your case, prosecution. And they wouldn't have been able to. And that was interesting, I thought. And then, the, but the, the great thing that Curtis Bennett, um, his, his defense really, and he did make a marvelous closing speech, sort of saying, look, this is a woman who lives in her head you cannot um, – he tried very hard to stop the letters being put in evidence because he knew that they were they were the only evidence against her, really. There was, there was literally nothing else other than that she was present at the time of the stabbing, but, you know, what did that prove? But once the letters were put in evidence, because the judge was very anti her, you know, very moralistic, the worst judge they could possibly have had, dreadful. His summing up was, was, was a disgrace. I mean, you can hardly read it without wanting to um, commit murder yourself, actually, of him. It, it was very, very appallingly biased. But Curtis Bennett made this speech sort of saying, you know, she's lived in her head. And if you look at the actual evidence, you know, the evidence that she poisoned Percy Thompson, you know, look at the look at the autopsy, there is no evidence that was his trump card really so his his defense was that there was there was no material evidence against her and to talk about incitement was you know you had to regard that as just somebody's you know imaginative outpourings but it was a bit subtle for a jury who thought she was an adulterous trollop with a with a who'd entangled a, a lovely young man in her sort of kind of Messalina-type dominatrix, once the letters were put in, she didn't really stand a chance. And also, he was very, very adamant that she shouldn't go in the witness box, and she was equally adamant that she should go in the witness box. And she was... If you read her own testimony, it's barely readable. It's so feeble, and um, she can't explain. How can you explain? It's like... I'm not saying she's a writer of this caliber, but it's like saying to Keats, "What did you mean when you said that you know that a, a Grecian urn was like a, <laughs> you know? I mean, you can't you can't transpose a sort of a, a outpouring, an imaginative outpouring, into a literal statement of the kind that's required within a court of law. So she she obfuscates and she. Sort of says, well, I didn't mean that at the time, or I, I, I didn't mean it, and I, well, I meant something else, and I, all this kind of thing. And what she also does is she kind of implicates Bywaters in a way that's very, you know, it's not appealing, it's, it's not nice. She, she puts a lot of blame on him. She's not, she's a very flawed character, Edith, which is part of what makes her so, you know, fascinating. Um, she's not brave in the witness box. I mean, would one be? You know, some people are. Bywaters was. Bywaters was absolutely fantastic. He wasn't frightened of the judge. He stood up to the bullying of the prosecution. He was he was as brave as anything, Bywaters, and he refused to implicate her. Sh- she wasn't brave. She kind of fell apart, and um, I find that all the more uh, touching, really. Because I can imagine that one might, and, and the, the judge alluded to that in his summing up, you know, how she, he tried to shield the woman, but the lady um, put all the blame on him, you know. So everything she did made her look worse, and everything Bywaters did made him look all the more gallant and kind of splendid, really. And yet, as I say, in the uh, when they were both condemned, he... Um, he did call in his defense counsel and say, no, look here, she did try, she did tell me to go and get something. She did tell me to go and get poison. Whether he thought that might get him off in some way or mitigate something, I don't know. And then he backtracked on that and on his last day on earth was kind of trying to exonerate her and, and get her off. And actually, his mother, on her last visit to him, he compelled her to go to a newspaper and say, look, Edith knew nothing, Edith knew nothing, you can't save me but tried to save Edith. So his poor mother, on her, uh, uh, you know, more or less hours before her son was executed, sent a, a re- relation to um, the editor of the Daily Express, Beverly Baxter, who later became a campaigner against the death penalty. And they did, they travelled through the night to the Home Secretary to ask for a reprieve, but he wouldn't give it. But it was, yes, a kind of last dish, like something in a film, traveling to to this remote country house where the Home Secretary is sitting in front of his fire, all comfortable, and to say, look, look, this woman has been exonerated. uh, 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 Come on, come on, reprieve, reprieve, reprieve. But no, 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 they they weren't having it. They were absolutely determined, absolutely determined.
0: So how long did it take for the jury to reach a verdict?
2: didn't take them very long. It took them about two hours to decide. The judge's summing up was so, you know, he disposed with Bywaters very quickly. I mean, Bywaters never stood any sort of chance. You know, he had not the guy. There was no question about that. The fact that there was a, a long scuffle was kind of dismissed. And yet the blood evidence tells you that there was. And he did go for a kind of manslaughter story uh, by waters and he, what he said was i thought I thought that Percy Thompson was going to pull a gun on me, which was obviously ridiculous, just ridiculous, but you could nevertheless say it was a fight, I thought he might kill me. They could have said that, but nothing it's the oddest thing I'm, I'm sure there have been cases like this in america when the when the the nuances of evidence are almost an irrelevance, or perhaps there haven't been cases like that, I hope there haven't, but this one certainly, the nuances of evidence were an irrelevance. You know, for example, in her last letter, Edith, she says, it does read badly, it does read badly. She says, do something tomorrow night, something to make you feel better, I'll be hurt, I know, And and that Do Something Tomorrow Night that she wrote on Monday the 2nd of October and the murder happened the next night. And she said in evidence what I meant was take my sister Avis out because I knew that would upset me, but it would right the balance because I was going out with Percy, and I thought if Freddie went out with Avis, it would make him feel better about me going out with Percy. And in fact, he did ask Avis out. He did. He, he, He asked her to go to the cinema with him. But he also killed Percy. So whether he deliberately misinterpreted Edith's words, because the rest of her letter is completely different. It's kind of, oh, we'll have to bear this a little longer and try and find me a job abroad and all this kind of thing. But of course, at the trial, with selective quotation from her letters, you could sadly, um, particularly those letters from spring 1922 when she's talking about the poisoning in a very, very... Fired up, excitable kind of way. You can see how, when you read the transcript from the trial, you can see how, it's like alternative narratives, if you like. There's the complicated, writerly narrative that she created, which is full of, well, sort of oddities and, and her own bizarre, you know, high-flown imagination. And then there's the narrative at the trial which says, this young man did this, but this older woman was writing this to him. You can see how it looked that way. When you read the newspaper reports, there's no question, there's no question, but that she is the really, really guilty party. And I probably if I'd been reading the papers at the time, I'd have thought, oh yeah, of course, she told him to do it. That was the narrative. And that was... You can see how it looked that way, and it didn't. It, 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 <laughs> That's what's so interesting about this case, is that there are these, there are these shades of meaning within it. It's almost infinitely fascinating, because most murders are quite simple, but this, because of the personalities, and because you've also got this alternative version of events written by her, in these letters. That gives it a a texture, if you like, that is so, so complex and interesting. But then you, you get the trial and the verdict is very quick. And then the appeals are dismissed almost immediately. And then the reprieves are dismissed almost immediately. And that's it. This other ending that you can kind of imagine as an imaginative woman, my God, in the wrong place at the wrong time, born into the wrong sort of class. You can imagine just how easily um, you can slip into this other ending, you know. She's, she's so easy to understand. She's so remarkable and she's so easy to understand. It's, it's a hell of a story, you know.
0: Yeah, it is. So from the point of the verdict to the point where she's executed, um, as you stated, a very short period of time, how does she handle her emotions while in jail? As her execution date looms before her,
2: well, she hadn't done anything, which doesn't help. I mean, if you read the Home Office documents, which I did, there was a lot that had been held under what be, what they call the hundred-year rule, so it wasn't meant to be seen until two thousand and twenty-two. But they released it. So, um, and you see just how determined the, the forces of law and government were detor- determined to bring this to a close, and talk a lot about petitions for their reprieve and all this, mainly for Bywater's reprieve, to be fair. And but that you know this must not happen; um, the law must be upheld. Society, the fabric of society, must be mended by getting rid of this woman, kind of thing. And they drew up this document: women who'd been condemned to death. Uh, and they took it from 1890 up to the end of 1922 and there were 23 women who'd been condemned to death including people who'd killed children and so and nine of them were hanged in that space of time 457 men were hanged so that tells you this is in England and Wales but the reprieve rate had gone was getting higher and higher for women and the, the, no woman had been hanged since 1907 And she was what they called a baby farmer, who took in children, unwanted children, and killed them. So that's quite a lot worse than anything Edith did. But they dropped this document and sort of made it a reason for Edith to be executed, and sort of said, you know, you can't reprieve on the grounds of sex. This woman was a cold-blooded poisoner. Absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever. But that had become fact. Things for which there was they knitted together phrases from her letters and and made facts out of them in a way that you almost had to admire. It was so clever and so the lapses in logic were kind of closed up so neatly. And she, meanwhile, in uh, Holloway Jail, which was a dreadfully grim place at the best of times, uh, was, well, first of all, she thought the appeal would succeed, And she wrote some other letters to a couple of female friends. She'd never had a lot of time for women, but then she sort of did. um, A couple of school friends, these very beautiful letters, uh, quite different from the ones she wrote to Freddie. Very stoical, uh, very philosophical, but whether the realization had quite reached her. Um, Saying quite a lot about, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the reprieve. And then, I think it was the 5th of January, when they refused the reprieve. And from that point, she fell apart. And you see records of all the drugs that were given to her. I mean, quite fantastic amounts of drugs. She wasn't a Catholic, but she wanted to see a priest because she'd found him kind. And they wouldn't let her see him unless she converted to Catholicism. They were quite cruel, really. They wouldn't let her receive letters from Freddie Bywaters. I don't know how interested she was in that anymore, actually. The whole love thing sort of fell apart at the touch, really. Although he still thought an awful lot about her, and I suppose also thought that it was his fault that she was in the death cell, which in a way it was, but then you could also say it was her fault that he was in the death cell. And her parents visited a lot, and... um it's quite hard to think about really it really is and I, I i mean it nearly killed me writing it and then I thought oh for God's sake <laughs> this actually happened to her there were a lot of rumours about the execution that she'd been pregnant which is ridiculous because if she had been they'd have reprieved her and been I think glad to do it they'd have said well we have to she's a wicked woman but we have to reprieve her we can't kill a baby and that I think they would have been glad to do it but she wasn't pregnant but there's a record of her last night on earth uh, that, that they just kept injecting her with stuff. And um, <laughs> the worst thing of all, uh, they killed people at 9 o'clock in the morning. And it said, um, the, the hangman looked through the door. He said, at, at, at 2 minutes to 9, she was asleep. And that uh, I couldn't, you know. So they woke her up and killed her. But he, he, was, he was very brave by water's. He'd have made a wonderful, brave soldier, I suppose, if he'd been born ten years earlier. But he was very brave. Uh, And all the people at the jail thought a lot of him and thought he'd been laid low by a wicked woman. Uh, But the only consolation in it is that it hasn't been forgotten. She's under my skin. She's probably under yours now. And she got under the skin of she's in an um agatha christie often references her in her books and um a lot of people virginia Woolf wrote about her in her diaries and a lot of people subsequently wrote about her a lot you know this this woman who had more life than perhaps her society she grew up in could cope with and what do we do with people like that and and why do women who don't quite fit perturb society so much um, and what a waste really and uh, you know her story hasn't been forgotten and I think she was kind of the beginning of the end of I, I, well I know not everyone agrees with bringing the death penalty in a, to an end but I think she marked a kind of change perhaps in the way murder trials were viewed in this country I think she, she gave society a, a big old jolt when they realised what they'd done And I think she still haunts people. And in fact, she was reinterred quite recently with her parents, which doesn't make much difference to her, does it? But I suppose it's the best we can do.
0: So for people who want to learn more about you, you have a website where people can go discover more information about this book, the others you've written, and about you yourself. And for people who want to purchase A Tale of Two Murders*. It's available pretty much everywhere books are sold.
2: Yes, yes, certainly can. Yes, it's, um, I mean, it's a very simple website, but it's laurathompson.co.uk. Yes, yeah, This book is, it's not my most successful book, but it's the book I'm proudest of. So I, I would be very, very thrilled if any of your listeners want to read it. That would be, that would be very wonderful, yeah.
0: I can feel the emotional connection you have to Edith Thompson, she, she's long gone, of course, but it seems very personal for you.
2: Well, as I say, you feel a bit shabby in a way, sort of getting, you know, I, the nightmares I had when I was writing it and all that kind of thing. And you think it, it almost feels like an emotional luxury because as I say, it really happened to her, but without sounding pompous, you just don't want to let down a story like this. You know, I just feel you had to give it everything. And I, I, I hope I did. I hope I did. And, yeah, I, I feel she deserved... She, she wasn't a perfect person by any means, but she deserves to be remembered properly.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful.
2: Oh, gosh. Uh, thank you, Eric. It's, it's, uh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Again, I've been speaking to Laura Thompson, author of A Tale of Two Murders, Guilt innocence and the execution of edith thompson this has been another episode of the most notorious podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world i'm eric riboness and have a safe tomorrow
1: hello my name is matt host of the pirate history podcast Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history.
2: When a war was fought to save the
1: Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to
2: join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history.
1: Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.